morning, Southwood family. It is, uh, it's been a long time since I've been here. I don't know many of you. Some of you I know from uh, the old days when we were all together back at Anderson and I saw a family this morning uh, from those days and they asked if I was lost. Very respectfully, <laughs> what are you doing here? Um, but it is a joy. My name is Pat Coyle. I uh, serve uh, all of our staff at all the campuses in the role of human resources, kind of pastor to staff and uh, we, my family and I worship over at Anderson and uh, get over here a couple of times a year and it's always exciting to see what the Lord is doing in each of the, uh, each of the locations and each of the church families. Uh, we're going to look uh, this morning, continue in the series uh, on the, uh, the patriarchs. We're going to be uh, continuing in that towards the end of the book of Exodus. And uh, if you notice there, I got to mention one more thing. Uh, I want you to be praying for my colleague and friend, Buck Anderson. Uh, his wife, Val, Val's mom, uh, was staying here in their home. She passed away a week ago now. And they're up in, uh, in Michigan uh, uh, for the memorial service intending to her affairs. And um, Buck was the one who prepared this sermon. And so a lot of the slides and the work that you're going to see in this um, are tribute to him. And I just want to mention that because this is a big subject. And if you notice... It's about 16 chapters of Exodus that we're going to be covering this morning. So a lot of ground uh, that we need to cover. Uh, and um, I just, you know, a little bit of fear and trembling to get up here and attempt to cover 16 chapters of anything, but Exodus in particular, Old Testament material uh, is pretty challenging. Um, and, you know, it looks from that like it's going to be a long morning on our time together. But the clock back there says it's already 1048, so I'm behind schedule. <laughs> now, we got about 40 minutes to plow through all of this, and I was, uh, I was looking at all this last week and came across a story uh, of a lady who, had, who was new to a town. Some of you may be new here this morning, and she had looked carefully into the churches in town and where she was going to attend, and she chose one, and she arrives that morning, and uh, much to her dismay, she gets into the service, and she realized that this particular pastor is known for really, really long-winded sermons, 16 chapter sermons and covering a lot of ground and she sits through it. She decides she's going to make the best of it. You know, at the end of the service, I'm going to go meet somebody and she goes up to a, a brother across the aisle who's, whose eyes were kind of drooping. He was kind of coming out of the fog and she says, good morning. I'm glad it's done. And he said, sister, I'm glad it's done too. I got to tell you. So I, I hope that's not our heart this morning as we, as we plow through this, but we're going to look at the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is just an amazing, amazing portion of scripture. Uh, so much to look into this morning. Uh, so much richness. If you're unfamiliar with the tabernacle, uh, the term uh, is the Greek verb form of tent. So it's a verb literally to tent, okay, to, to, uh, to dwell among, to dwell with, to be among. It's the, uh, it's the word that we get our English word tavern from. And if you think about a tavern, it would have been a place of gathering for people to be together. And often there was lodging for strangers at the tavern uh, in olden times. And interestingly, in the Old Testament tabernacle, God is a stranger. God is a stranger coming to dwell among us. And that's the reality that we're going to see unfold. So as we uh, started... The series on the patriarchs, um, there were several versions. I listened to the pastors at the different campuses and how they set this series up. But basically, there was a theme that we established that God intends to glorify himself by establishing his kingdom on earth through humanity. That's us, okay? And if that's true, or since that's true, 
Uh, being a gracious God, then it follows that he would equip us for that. He would empower us and he would Emmanuel with us, that he would come and be with us and be God with us. And in his word, he affirms again and again and again that that's exactly what he's doing. What an amazing God he is. In preparation for this, Buck and I came across this quote by an author named Fred Zaspel. And it's just a, a, a profound thought, the idea that what distinguishes Christianity from all other religions is that it is a revealed religion. It's not about our search for God or our means of finding him. Christianity is not a religion that works its way upward. It's all about God coming to us. God in grace, making himself known to us and making a way for us to enjoy fellowship with him. That's a profound thought. It's what, it's what distinguishes our faith. If you're sharing your faith with someone, it's an excellent point to make. That all of religion, all of religion in human history is about clawing your way up to somehow attain relationship or even contact with God. But the Christian gospel is that God extended himself to us. So if we apply this idea uh, into the study of the tabernacle, then his establishment of the tabernacle illustrates the reality of that very thing. We see God coming to us. We see God making himself known to us. And we see his desire for us to fellowship with him. It's a shocking reality. It put in the vernacular, students, God wants to room with me. God wants to live with me. He wants to do life with me. He wants to be with me. And this study is going to help us appreciate and desire that presence. We sang words of desire for that presence, his presence in our lives. I wonder sometimes how often we're singing those thoughts and not really absorbing them and, and meditating on them. And we have that opportunity uh, this morning. So we're going to jump in. We're going to begin a chapter before Exodus 25. Turn to Exodus 24. The context in Exodus 24 is uh, the renewing of the covenant. The covenant had been established. The people are in the wilderness, uh, and there's a renewing of the covenant taking place. And in verse 12 of chapter 24, the Lord says to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instructions. So the Lord says, Come on up, Moses. Come on up and be face to face with me. Uh, this, is, this is important. Um, he's calling Moses into his presence. If you read on in verses 15 uh, and following, Moses went up to the mountain. The cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on the mountain, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered into the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So here's kind of an overview of the, this, that's the preview for the setting of 25 through 40. Here's an overview. 40 days, 40 nights, Moses is on the mountain with God. Uh, he receives the pattern of the tabernacle, 25 through 30, and the tablets containing the Ten Commandments in 31. Then, in uh, chapters 32 through 34, we talked a few weeks ago, I think, about the, old, the golden calf incident. We're going to look at that from just a little bit of a different perspective today because it really puts this whole thing at risk in the way that it occurs. But I'm going to give you a spoiler, okay? 
The crisis occurs, but God overcomes it, all right? And the tabernacle is constructed in 35 through 40. So that's, that's an overview of our time. If you like it in kind of outline form, there's the planning phase. There's the golden calf interruption, if you will. And then the construction phase for uh, the continuation of that. So we're going to look at that planning phase real quickly. Uh, if you think about a situation where you're in a building project, any of y'all who have been inv- involved in those kind of things, whether a home, a commercial a church building, our Creekside campus has been very much a, a version of this. Um, you secure the financing. You have to have a way to pay for it. Uh, you, you know the purpose. You don't want to build without purpose. Uh, and then you pattern the construction according to that purpose. And then you're ready to build. And basically, you see God's practicality, his wisdom uh, in that following exactly those things. Or maybe we follow him in that. Probably a better way to say it. Uh, the raising of the resources in early chapter 25. The Lord spoke to Moses Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man uh, whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. Who's it for? Uh, it's for the Lord. It's his, his purpose and then his heart as well. Contribution, which you are to raise for them, gold, silver, bronze, material, wood, oil, spices, stones, ephod, and the breastpiece are references to the parts that we're just going to uh, see in just a second. But, but God's calling together all of these resources uh, from his people uh, to build this place of glory for him. Looking at the purpose, God gives that again in the same passage in verse 8. He reiterates, uh, and let them con- construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. What's his purpose? It's for him, and it's for the purpose of his being in the very presence among his people. That's his desire for us, with first glimpse that we see of that. And then in the design, according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern for all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. There's obvious importance of God's glory and honor in the construction of the tabernacle. And so he calls, he gives specific instructions and he calls the people, he calls Moses, he calls all working on it to be very, very meticulous just in exactly the way uh, that he says, without error, great specificity. So let's just do this. Uh, With all these chapters, we really don't have a lot of time to read in depth in the scripture, but if you look, if you start in chapter 25, and I'm just basically going to turn pages and read the subject headings that are in my Bible, uh, because it gives you an idea of how the giving of the plan went um, as the Lord gave the instructions to Moses. So in 25, we have the offerings for the sanctuary. They, they, they do collect according to what, uh, what uh, God told Moses. There's the uh, instructions for the Ark of the Covenant, the table of the showbread, the golden lampstand. 26, the curtains of linen, curtains of goat's hair, boards and sockets, the veil and screen. 27, the bronze altar. We're going to look at all these things. Don't worry. Uh, Court of the tabernacle, uh, on in 27. And 28, the garments of the priests. So down, down to the detail of what the, the priests wore, that uh, breastplate and ephod that was referenced a minute ago is in the, what the priests wore. Uh, the, the consecration... Of the priests in 29, the sacrifices, the food for the priests. This is all kind of a, a foreshadowing of, um, of uh, Leviticus, the, 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 some of the studies that we're already into in some of, the, uh, some of the sermons going on right now. The altar of incense in chapter 30, the anointing oil, the incense, the skilled craftsman in 31, and the sign of the Sabbath. 
So all of those things are given. We don't have time to look at the instructions as they were given, but they're given very specifically. And essentially, with great fanfare, <laughs> new equipment. Hopefully this will not continue. Um, essentially, whoo, okay. Is it that slide? It sure is. Okay, blink while you look at it, okay? Um, just, just, I'm going to go back one more time, but then I'll get off of it. Uh, that's the layout, and hopefully the next time we see this slide, it won't do that. Okay. Woo, all right. Got to be prepared for anything. Um, that uh, is a, a, an artist's rendition of the layout that you just saw blinking before you. Uh, the, the, uh, the area of the tabernacle, about two and a half basketball courts, if you give you an idea of the area, the square footage. Um, it's not precisely, you can't lay them out you know, in that square footage, but it gives you an idea of the space that was involved, how much there was there. Uh, it was placed in the center of the camp, uh, and on the eastern gate, I wish I still had that slide, so the eastern gate would have been over here, it's right down in front of you, That's, so it's east towards us, and the, uh, the tribe of Judah would be the tribe outside uh, of the eastern gate, and as we look at symbolisms of Christ in the tabernacle in just a minute, you see the, the symbolism of the lion of the tribe of Judah through which people would pass on their way in to the tabernacle. So, various artists' renditions. Um, there's one, uh, I like the Native American Indian motif of this one. Uh, don't quite know where that came from. I think that probably the tents are a little more accurate, Bedouin tents, you know, in this one. Uh, and we'll come back to this one a few times. But uh, I like this one uh, because of the proximity of the tents that it shows to the tabernacle, how, how, how the people were right in around it. This place of God's dwelling was right in among among the people. So this is a, an illustration of God's intent as he spoke uh, to Moses about it in the chapters that we just thumbed through, but all is not well. If you remember the uh, sermon a few weeks ago on the golden calf incident in uh, 32 through 34, there's a crisis. Like any good story, any good plot line, uh, there's a crisis. There's a, an interlude, there's opposition via idolatry. It occurs in chapter 32, Again, we're not going to be able to read through it in detail. Um, it was preached on already, but just a few observations about this incident in light of the context of the tabernacle that we're looking at. A couple of things. The episode threatens the covenant. The covenant had just been renewed. The presence of God among the people was a manifestation, a, a part of that covenant. And uh, it occurs strategically, if you think about the mindset of a sworn enemy to this whole process, it occurs strategically between the plans for the tabernacle and its actual realization uh, in the construction. And we see this in scripture time and time again, consistent opposition to the covenant between God and his people. And an interesting note to ponder, the same generation that experienced the Red Sea miracle participated in the golden calf incident, that, that horrible interlude of idolatry against God, and they were later disqualified from entering the land. Some sobering lessons in there. Uh, first of all, opposition is dependable. If you are up and about the purposes and calling of God in your life, you're going to encounter it. Satan's going to come against you, the world, the flesh, the devil are going to come against you, uh, and we need to be not surprised, not knocked off of our feet, uh, but to be prayerful and watchful and dedicated uh, to what the Lord is doing. And then secondly, as with the children of Israel, we don't want to be the opposition. 
if idolatry arises in our lives, if things contrary, worshiping things contrary to the worship of God arises in our lives, we're going to become selfish, we're going to become self-centered, centered off of the purposes of God, and we become the opposition, just as God's own people did. So if you're in that situation, if you wake up and you see yourself, my goodness, I'm out of whack here, uh, I am the opposition, cry out to the Lord, repent, pray to him, uh, turn back to him and, and, and return to that calling uh, that he's set before you. Idolatry will always destroy our relationship with God. So this isn't a great picture quality-wise, but uh, many of you know, especially if you're my generation, uh, the movie The Ten Commandments, I am pretty sure uh, that Charlton Heston is somehow the real Moses. I, I don't, I just, you know, in my mind, <laughs> I don't believe in reincarnation, anything like that, but in my mind, you know, this guy, he's, he's Moses. He's the picture of Moses. And there he is. He's come down from the mountain. The people are in idolatry. He's about to break the tablets, that very, very dramatic scene. And we'll, we'll let him kind of look over us here as we kind of complete the story. Uh, the, the, you know, God, God wants to smite the people. When Moses comes down, he wants to take them out and establish a new nation uh, through Moses. But the, the God does relent. He does do some smiting in the process. There are consequences to our sin. He leads the people on uh, in his grace. He restores the tablets. The covenant is renewed. There's that beautiful moment uh, this, in the story of Moses where his face is literally glowing from the glory, from his being in the presence of the glory of God. Uh, opposition is overcome by a gracious God. And we move to the construction phase. So uh, the enemy tries, God overcomes. And the construction phase we're going to look at very simply because there's a lot of other wonderful, wonderful stuff we want to look at. Um, basically, the construction phase is in chapters 35 through 40. Uh, contributions are requested. The workmen are called. Gifts are received. All those things that God spoke of in his instructions are given. Amazing, massive giving of... And interestingly, the source of many of these things as the people left Egypt. Do you remember what happened? People finally got out of Egypt. All the plagues were over. The Egyptians are relieved and they actually kind of threw their wealth at the children of Israel as they left. There was plunder. God provided not only for the children of Israel but for his tabernacle through that, that plunder in that moment as they left Egypt. Uh, so those things are given and received. Workers are endowed with skill from God. That's a Early reference to the idea of spiritual gifts that we enjoy in our relationship with the Lord and through the uh, inhabiting of his spirit and uh, the tabernacle is built and outfitted. That's the story, essentially the, the story of the construction. And again, it's not the blinking image, but the one that didn't blink. Uh, there's, there's the uh, idea, there's the, the goal, rendering of what God was after. And you'll see there manifested above the back of the tent, a manifestation of, of God's glory coming to be in among his people as he dwells with them. So that kind of seems like the end of the story, but there's a whole, whole lot more. And what we want to do, and I'm a little fearful right now because the slide I wanted to use is that scary one, uh, but we want to walk through the tabernacle, um, through the gate and into the various elements of it and look at those elements um, uh, each, each individually, and then we want to look uh, even deeper because of this idea of typology or images of Christ that we see in the tabernacle. As the story of the Bible unfolds and progresses after this point, each element of the tabernacle takes on a deeper significance. Finding the ultimate fulfillment in Christ himself, the ultimate 
manifestation of God with us, which, of which the tabernacle was a foreshadowing. So there's rich, rich symbolism. And uh, that symbolism begins with the blinking slide. <laughs> okay. Oh, gosh, let's see. I'm going to go back to, okay. Come on, come on. There we go. All right. Uh, that symbolism begins in the, in the complex itself. And that would be everything, including the outer uh, wall, uh, the courtyard, uh, the items in the courtyard, and then the actual tabernacle is the tent that you see there, the tent of meeting. And there's two parts to that. Uh, the holy place, which is the first two-thirds as you would enter, but you wouldn't enter because you're not a priest. We'll talk about that. You would enter to the holy place, and at the back would be the holy of holies, where rested the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God. All right, so... Real quickly, as we go by the white slide, you see the two, two-thirds and the one-third there? That's the holy place and the holy of holies. We good? Okay, so we're going <laughs> we're gonna to walk through. Uh, remember now, imagine the whole complex, uh, walls and all. Uh, and, and remember this, that, oops, there we are. The tabernacle complex was God's dwelling place with, among, and in the midst of his people. That's, that's what this whole thing is. How is that fulfilled in Christ? In John 1, we read, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Christ, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we see it, this overarching, amazing reality of God's desire to live with us, and that fulfilled completely in the ministry and the presence and the life and death of Christ. So if we move through the gate through the tribe of Judah, into the gate, uh, into the courtyard, we would see three things. The priest, the bronze altar, and the bronze layer. We're going to talk about each of those pieces. So the priest, uh, the idea of the priesthood, the role of the priest was mediator. Uh, the priest's role was uh, the backbone of Old Testament uh, teaching and sacrificial ministry. They were the, the sacrifice doers, and they were the instructors of the people through that, they taught and they guided with and through the sacrificial process, and thus through the sacrificial process, they were acting as the mediators uh, between man and God. Their garb, as you see there, and their activities were all rich with symbolism. Uh, they bore a heavy responsibility. The priests <laughs> were under pretty constant threat of death. Um, <laughs> if they did certain things wrong, it was over. Okay, so the, the role was very, very serious, very serious uh, in God's eyes, but. But, but central to it was that idea of mediator between, uh, between mankind and God. How much more so the mediating ministry of Christ. One God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, and then the affirmation that Jesus is our high priest. Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest. So the priest would have met you in the courtyard in preparation for your coming to, the, to, to give your sacrifice. And the sacrifice would be given and burned at the bronze altar first large thing that you would see as you came through the gates, uh, with the risk of being a little too maybe familiar, uh, the, the bronze altar was um, very much like a big barbecue pit, okay? <laughs> Things were burning on it all day long, meat primarily, uh, the sacrifices were burning all day. Uh, it was central to the Old Testament sacrificial system since Genesis 3 and the shedding of blood to clothe Adam and Eve, since the Passover and the shedding of blood to put over the doorposts, sacrifice was necessary uh, in God's uh, consequences of sin. 
And if you, if you, I don't know that we've had here at Southwood the first series from Leviticus or first sermon from Leviticus on the, on the festivals, but on the festivals you'll see that sacrifices were made at each of the festivals. And there were offerings involved, uh, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin, guilt offerings, all of those were burned here at the, uh, at the bronze altar. If you were bringing an animal sacrifice your, uh, for the sin offering, your hand would be laid on the head of the animal as the life was taken. So a very personal connection with the consequence of your sin. That precious, spotless lamb would be sacrificed and, and there while your hand uh, was resting upon its head. And seen in Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world in his sacrifice for us. So moving... Sorry, we got the labor. I almost went on. The bronze labor would be the last item that you saw as you came, uh, as you came through, heading towards the tent of meeting. After the sacrifice, the priest would come and wash at the labor. You see, it's a big basin, basically. He would wash in preparation to enter the holy place, uh, to enter the first part of the tabernacle. He had to wash or he would die. That's one of those priest things that had very, very high consequences the laver was interestingly made from mirrors, bronze. Mirrors back then were polished bronze, just a piece of bronze polished. Probably the mirrors came from the plunder that we mentioned. Uh, the mirrors were sacrificed, given, so that the, uh, the uh, bronze laver could be made from one piece of bronze, this entire bowl from one, one solid piece. Uh, interesting, if you think about that offering of the mirrors, it would be like a sacrifice of vanity in order to uh, have this place of cleansing. And then water has always literally and figuratively been key element in the idea of cleansing, spiritually speaking. And as seen in Jesus, we have confidence to enter the holy place. By his blood, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That from Hebrews 10. So we've moved through the courtyard and we'd be heading now into the tent. I think the white slide is coming up into the holy place right there. Moving on. Uh, and, and the next two parts, um, uh, that's, that's actually, as I said, the, the tabernacle is actually the tent. Um, and in there, uh, the two parts, and each of those uh, had some elements. The first, the holy place, had three elements. The golden lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table of bread. So we're going to take those one at a time, talk about them, and talk about their fulfillment in Christ. The light... Uh, the lampstand would have been the only light in a very dark place. The instructions for that building of that tabernacle, the, the uh, um, coverings that went over it, the, 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 uh, the veil on the front, the veil between the two places were very thick, uh, very thick material. And so it was dark inside of this place. And the lampstand would have been the light in that dark, uh, dark space. It was one solid piece of gold. So not, not pieced together. That thing you see was fashioned. Imagine the craftsman and what they had to do. Uh, in order to accomplish that. Uh, it was uh, seven branches. Each of those branches had um, knobs and flowers and almond bowls to hold oil. The idea, this doesn't really represent it very well, but it, it would look like an almond branch with an almond blossom, and the blossom would hold the, uh, the oil for the actual light. Uh, the priest would daily trim the wicks of it and keep the light burning constantly. Um, and Jesus' fulfillment... Uh, is seen in John eight twelve. He spoke to them saying what? I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk, walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There's a couple of other references there too. Uh, one being the seven 
lamps in Revelation 4 in the, uh, in the heavenly throne room. And the other being the reference of seven. Of course, anytime you see the number seven, there's just great scriptural uh, uh, opportunities there. But the, the seven uh, churches in Revelation uh, and the idea that we are also referred to as the light of the world. We in the church. And so a lot of symbolism, uh, rich, rich symbolism there. The altar of incense was the next thing that you'd come to. Um, the high priest would burn a specifically recipied special incense that God, again, gave very specific instructions for uh, for this particular incense. Uh, the wrong fire. If you remember a story, I think it was Aaron's sons, the wrong fire would result in death. Again, very, very strong consequences for the priests doing the wrong thing. Uh, on the Day of Atonement, the, uh, the altar of incense was sprinkled with blood, with the blood of the sacrifice. This is the place where the angel met uh, Zechariah in announcing that John the Baptist would come to Elizabeth, would be born by Elizabeth. And then incense, very simply, symbolizes uh, prayer. And the ongoing burning of this incense in this particular setting, it was constant, never stopped, makes us think of Christ in Hebrews 7, always living to make those prayers for us, constant prayers on our behalf from our Savior. And then the last piece uh, there would be the table of showbread or the table of bread. The priests replaced 12 special loaves, uh, placed 12 special loaves. They replaced them each Sabbath, uh, representing the 12 tribes. Uh, It was a continual uh, symbol of God's provision for his people. Jehovah Jireh, our provider, uh, his provision to Israel, constant promises. Aaron and his sons and future priests ate this bread, and then uh, they would replace it, as I said, each Sabbath. And again, I think you'll know what the symbolism of Jesus is when he said, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So after the holy place, and we don't have the blinking slide coming up now, after the holy place would be the holy of holies, or the uh, most holy place. And this is a, a, a part where there were to the symbolism, we want to look at the symbolism of that place itself, uh, and then the veil uh, and the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the high priest would pass the veil, very thick veil, we'll talk about the significance of that in just a second, into, into where the Ark of the Covenant uh, rested. Uh, the Holy of Holies was a cube, it was the same measurement on all four sides and uh, in its height, so it was a perfect cube. Um, the high priest would only, uh, interestingly, in the, the cube, there's one view on, on the, why God made it exactly a perfect cube, that you could stand on either of the sides and see the Ark of the Covenant from a different perspective, as the four Gospels giving us each a different perspective on the life of Christ. The high priest would enter once a year, and um, because God's glory rested uh, there in the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat, There needed to be a veil, a separation between man and God because God's holiness was powerfully, his glory powerfully and perfectly manifest in the Holy of Holies and there needed to be that separation uh, to set apart mankind from the perfection of God. It was thick, as I said, beautifully designed. Symbolism, you see the cherubim there in the design, strategically placed. Um, And the uh, connection to Christ on this actually is a little bit different uh, because uh, in, the, in the symbolism of his death, there was the tearing of the veil. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. This is the context of his crucifixion. Yielded up his spirit. 
And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That would be no easy thing, by the way, because it was thick. I mean, when I say thick, indescribably thick. And somehow, in the, in the work of God, that, that veil from top to bottom, with no one there to cut it or do anything, was torn asunder, uh, opening the way between us and access to God. Inside the Holy of Holies, uh, once a year, the high priest would enter. He would approach the ark on the Day of Atonement. And there's a bunch to cover here. I'm just going to give you some slides so you can kind of see what I'm saying as I'm saying it, because there's a lot to talk about. The ark was God's throne, Yahweh's throne, where he dwelt in a localized way and made manifest his presence with the people. Mercy seat was the removable lid of this hollow golden box. Inside the ark were Aaron's budding rod, a jar of manna, and the Ten Commandments written by God's hand on the tablets. His dwelling place among the people and his relationship with them quite literally sat above these three elements on the mercy seat, right on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, in, In teaching of the festivals, and I'm not sure that's been here at Southwood yet, but you'll see that there were uh, three reminders, these three things, Aaron's rod, uh, the manna, and the and Ten Commandments, were reminders of Israel's rebelliousness. So God's ultimate provision from this point on would be the blood of a sacrifice to pay for our sins, applied to the seat, to pay for the sins of the nation, applied to the seat, so that in taking occupancy upon the mercy seat, God's uh, people's rebellious failure would be covered below him by the blood that was placed over it. Rich, rich symbolism there. It was on the mercy seat that the high priest offered the sacrificial blood once a year to atone for, to Kippur, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to cover all the sins of the Israelites as a nation. Interesting reference, too, if you think back to that image of of the Ark of the Covenant, the way that it looked. The terms for Ark in the Old Testament, uh, you have the Ark... Uh, Noah's Ark, you have the basket that the baby Moses was placed in. It's a, it's a, holding, place, a, a holding place of protection, in a sense, deliverance. Uh, the, the word for Ark of the Covenant is a slightly different word, leans a little bit more toward the idea of a coffin. And, and if you think of the image of it, the two the wings of the cherubim, the two angels on either side, and you think about it in context of the blood of Christ uh, and the, the, uh, Christ's resting place in the tomb when the people came, the next morning and found him resurrected, there were two angels on either end of where his body would have lain. And Anyway, just, just so, so, so much rich symbolism, uh, looking back and looking forward. Uh, so, we've seen each, each element symbolize Christ. We see it nowhere more profoundly for our own salvation, our own relationship with God, than here at the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat. And from Hebrews, when Christ appeared... As the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained the eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is our gospel. And I just, as we wrap up in a few more minutes, um, we're going to turn our our 
eyes, uh, our hearts toward this idea of God desiring to dwell in relationship with us. And the first and foremost factor that has to be in place for us to know that in our lives is to have to be in relationship with God. How does that happen? Well, the scripture teaches that uh, our sins separate us, just like that veil separated the people from the holy place. Our sins separate us from God. It was Christ on the cross who tore that veil, made that way of relationship to the Father open. And the scripture teaches it's by faith in Christ and what he did in living that perfect life, dying that death, and rising to to defeat death and hell. By faith in what he did, uh, we can know that we have life with him in the present and eternal life with him uh, for all of time. That's the gospel. That's the good news of the Christian faith. That's God reaching down to us instead of us having to claw our way up to him. And if the issue for you this morning in terms of that idea of God being in your life and dwelling with you and working through you is, I don't even know him. That's where it begins. By faith in Christ. By putting your trust in what he did. I want to really encourage you as we get to that application point, if this is something that's new to you, come and talk to one of the pastors. Come and talk to me but we want you to first and foremost make that step of putting your trust in Christ and in what he did. So, back to the tabernacle, and it's pointing to all this that we've been talking about. The plans are given, enacted at the end of Exodus perfectly, and they perfectly establish a place for God to tent with his people. At the end of chapter 40, God affirms the tabernacle's construction in a very, very profound Way. In verse 34 of chapter 40, it says, The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then in 35, even Moses was unable to enter the tabernacle, enter the tent of meeting. The cloud had settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. From that point on, it was only the priests who could come until the time of Christ and the rending of the veil. It was only the priests who could come. Uh, and enter God's presence. Aaron's sons, future priests. And we're going to look at that system more as we go through the lessons in Leviticus coming up. So, uh, what about the future of the temple? What about the future of the tabernacle and its manifestation in the temple? I want to trace the timeline as God, um, uh, in his intended plan uh, to dwell with us goes on and moves towards our time and past our time. Uh, and there was a permanent place, first of all, one more beautiful and one more, on a more significant piece of real estate in Jerusalem that David acquired and uh, Solomon built, the first temple, uh, the, the, the system of the tabernacle, the presence of the tabernacle as a portable uh, manifestation of God's presence was done and the temple became that permanent uh, dwelling place. And then uh, at the time of the exiles, the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., um, There's an interesting note in Ezekiel uh, 10 and 11, chapters 10 and 11 of Ezekiel, describing the departure of God's glory at the time that the temple was destroyed. And uh, it describes his glory as moving out uh, over uh, the mountain to the east. So the mountain to the east of of the temple mount would be the Mount of? Mount of Olives. Okay, so that's the last place that God's glory is seen there as it, as it departs. And hold on to that thought, because it'll be really interesting in just a moment as we look at the rest of this timeline. Uh, so then, uh, there's a second temple as the as exiles return. Second temple uh, in 536, the second temple walls restored in 444 B.C., 
And then uh, under Herod, that temple is expanded uh, is in the time period that you see they're moving into the ADs, okay? And so it's uh, Herod's temple that was uh, in the time of Christ. And it was really a pinnacle of the temple architecture and uh, just the, the, the centrality of it, the beauty of it. Uh, probably the glory was not there because the glory had uh, departed and Christ had not come. But it was a very glorious structure uh, in terms of its appearance and its centrality uh, to the people's lives. But its glory was different because this is the temple where Christ himself uh, lived and ministered. Beginning in Luke 2, when Simeon sees Jesus in the temple and uh, he calls Jesus the glory of Israel. So in a sense, the glory was in this temple through the coming of Christ. So then we have what we described at the crucifixion of Christ. The veil is torn, and uh, we uh, have that work done, and by faith we can experience God with us in this, in this temple of ourselves. So then the church, we see the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, uh, and each believer's body becomes the, the presence of, of the manifestation of God with us. And, and collectively, we, the church, are uh, the temple of the living God, as referred to uh, in 2 Corinthians. It's amazing, uh, amazing fulfillment of this looking at God's desire to be with his people throughout all of Scripture. In 70 AD, the physical temple was destroyed by the Romans, uh, as described, and you know, perfectly fulfilled. And what we have today is a very small portion of it. The larger stones you see down here would be part of the foundation of the original temple, and they call that the Wailing Wall. Uh, so there it is, a fraction of the structure in a little stone wall, and Islam's symbolic, symbolic mosque sitting atop where the temple should be. It seems like all is done, all hope is lost, but God's plan is still not finished for his temple. Um, there will be, uh, in the time of the tribulation, a third temple, uh, we know there is because its de- uh, desecration is described, and it can't be desecrated if it doesn't exist. We don't know exactly how it's going to come to exist, uh, but it will be there, uh, and it will be uh, functional for a while, desecrated, and destroyed again. There will be yet a fourth temple, the Millennial Temple, uh, during the Millennial uh, Reign of Christ uh, on earth. And... Uh, this is, the, this is the season of Christ's return, depending on the different views and how, how you view Christ's return. But regardless, in Zechariah 14, uh, Christ's return is described as coming down to the amount of, say it loudly, olives where the glory departed from. So the glory departs from the Mount of Olives and its, it's return. I said Ezekiel 11 as well as uh, 43 uh, Sorry, Zechariah 14, as well as Ezekiel 43, uh, God's glory coming from the east, Christ coming down, uh, the glory's return is at that spot of its departure, and it's the feet of Christ coming down on that very spot and splitting the Mount of Olives. I don't, I don't know what that's going to be like, uh, but that's an amazing thing to think about. But that's not all. There is still yet uh, one more ultimate uh, manifestation of this, of this great structure, and that would be the new heavenly temple. And that is described uh, in Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, 
New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. They shall be his people. God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning, any crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Full circle. God desires uh, and plans to be with us, his people. And this is the ultimate, uh, the ultimate fulfillment of that. So from creation to the return of Christ, we behold this magnificent idea in all of religious thinking and all of religious history that God desires to live in and among his very people. God with us, Emmanuel, unparalleled in all of human history. So from the plan, go quickly past that, to the realization, to the temple, and then ultimately to the culmination of God's plan. And there's the cube, there's the Holy of Holies, you know, uh, that, that very, very dwelling place of God coming to be among us in the new heaven and the new earth. God desires to dwell with you, in relationship with you, in your life. So we're going to wrap up, just a few thoughts uh, of application Marvel on this reality. God's given a clear narrative of his desire, his heart's desire to tabernacle with me. Personalize that. Ponder the fact that the perfection and the complexity of this entire narrative from beginning to past where we are in time ensures its truth. This could not be made up. So much has been perfectly fulfilled. And then we look at what is yet to come uh, we need to just, just really set our hearts and marvel on that and think, do I want to tabernacle with him? If yes, I need to know him. We talked about how to do that through faith in Christ. I need to grow in him. Maybe steps you need to take to further, to deepen uh, your discipleship, to deepen your walk with the Lord, to grow in him. And one other thing we don't often think about, but God has a desire that we tabernacle among others. And we share him with them through doing that. His presence in us, a blessing and a ministry to others. We've got opportunities through the Every, Na- Every Neighbor uh, initiative that we've been talking about. Uh, we have opportunities through missions. Some of you, God's calling you to uh, fulfill that tabernacling among others through going to other nations and other people to be his presence among them. Big, big challenges. But part and parcel with this whole beautiful plan of God's desire to dwell with us is this desire that we take him and share him. So I want to give you a couple of minutes just to to ponder that in your own heart, just a silent prayer moment here, uh, and then I'll close this in just a minute. God, we do thank you for this beautiful picture, this beautiful story. Um, Pray that as we ponder it more, that we would uh, look more into your word and look into these things and just intensify our understanding of this, uh, this desire of yours and how beautifully you've You've painted, painted the picture of it for us. Pray for each heart here. And as we just ponder these things, God, I know there's some who, who desire to know you and are understanding that for the first time, who are desiring to grow in you. God, just give us an um, understanding of how you desire for us to apply this in our lives. And uh, Lord, just pray that we wouldn't leave it here, but as we go out this week, you'd put yourself on our minds as we're interacting with others and uh, your desire to, to live with us. We thank you for that, God. We're amazed. We give our thanks and our praise and these, these requests, God, to you.
In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.